Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books in Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I am Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the channel with Carrie Figder. Carrie is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. Today, my guest is Professor Simon Blackburn. We'll be talking about his new book, Mirror, Mirror, The Uses and Abuses of Self-Love, which is newly published by Princeton University Press. Simon Blackburn is Professor of Philosophy at Cambridge University. At the heart of our moral thinking lies a troubled relation to ourselves. The self is, after all, at morality's core. Selves are intimately connected to, and on some views identical to, the proper objects of moral evaluation. But a common theme of moral theory is that the self, and concern with the self, is the source of much that is immoral, selfishness, greed, vanity, arrogance, envy, and the like. Many moral views that otherwise are opposed seem to agree that being good requires some kind of disassociation with the self. And the transcending of the self is a central theme of our most popular religious traditions. Yet selves are not going away. Indeed, Culturally, the self is increasingly dominant. We use the first personal pronouns as prefixes now. We use iPods to listen to iTunes. We use our iPhones to take selfies. All of this self-absorption, moreover, seems connected to social ills that stem from lack of concern with other selves. The question then is how to discern the proper degree of self-regard. In Mirror, Mirror, Simon Blackburn explores the complex phenomena surrounding selves and self-regard. He offers deep insights into notions like pride, ambition, vanity, temptation, authenticity, and much else. This is a thoughtful and thought-provoking book, so let's turn to the interview. Hello, Simon Blackburn. Hello, Bob. How are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you. Oh, very good. Thank you for joining us on New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for having me. And thank you, listener, for tuning in to our podcast. As you know, my guest today is Simon Blackburn, and Simon's latest book is titled Mirror, Mirror, The Uses and Abuses of Self-Love. This is a thoughtful and thought-provoking series of interrelated philosophical reflections concerning the complex phenomena surrounding self and self-regard. Vanity, pride, respect, temptation, authenticity, and the like. And what's more, Simon confesses that the book was in part instigated by the successful advertising campaign of a well-known cosmetics manufacturer. So we'll be talking a little bit uh, about that. Um, But before we explore these intriguing themes, uh, Simon, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to this project? 
Hi, Bob. Well, um, I'm a professional philosopher coming towards the twilight of my career, um, and I've uh, written a lot about various aspects of philosophy. I grew up in England, as you can no doubt tell from my voice. Uh, I went to Cambridge and uh, in the early 60s and became absolutely besotted by philosophy, and I've remained besotted by it for uh, uh, the whole of my career, which is nice uh, nice for me. It's given me a central plank in my life. The um, uh, first work I did in philosophy was, uh, the first serious work I did after an undergraduate education, uh, was a doctorate on uh, the problem of induction, which is a problem in the philosophy of science, actually. Uh, it had a lot to do with probability and prediction and extrapolation of graphs, graph-fitting problems, and so on. And basically, it's the old problem that uh, is made famous by Hume of how we know that the future resembles the past, or why we even have any reason to believe that the future will resemble the past. Um, after that, I got a job in Oxford, and I uh, spent 10 years starting a family, getting married, all that sort of stuff, doing rather little publishing, although I published the odd paper. Uh, and then in the 1980s, several things happened. One was I published a book in the philosophy of language called Spreading the Word, and I became the editor of the journal Mind, which is one of the um, best-known uh, journals in professional philosophy. So that uh, kept my nose to the grindstone. Um, about uh, six years after that happened, I was starting to be wooed by colleges in the United States. And the life of an Oxford don, although it uh, is very nice in some ways, you're surrounded by the beautiful buildings and you have very smart students, um, it was very hard work. And uh, because the tutorial system means you're in contact with students day in, day out, hour in, hour out. And so when I started to be wooed by colleges in the United States, uh, they found me quite receptive. And so eventually we went to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, mm. where I spent the 1990s, very happy years. Um, and during that time, I wrote the Oxford Dictionary of Philosophy, which was rather a matter of conducting my own education in public, as it were. <laughs> um, but I, uh, I took a lot of advice, of course, and had a lot of um, support from, uh, from colleagues. Um, and at the end of that decade, I wrote a book called Think, which was designed partly in reaction against the great big bricks of textbooks that uh, college courses so often just uh, fall back on and students have to lug around practically in trolleys. Um, <laughs> and I thought this is completely inappropriate for philosophy. What philosophers have to do is uh, read less and think more. So, so I wrote the book Think, which was uh, designed for that end and has been, I think, I can say, pretty successful. It's used in quite a lot of courses, and it's um, generally liked. At least I get a little trickle of mail, which... Of course, it's very good for my vanity, saying that people people have liked it. Um, and then um, the chair in Cambridge um, was offered to me, and um, there were domestic reasons, too, for the contemplating coming back to England. Um, so in uh, 2000, 2001, I came back and uh, spent the last decade of my life 
occupying the the chair in philosophy in Cambridge, which is now known as the Bertrand Russell chair, which I was very pleased about. Um, since then, I retired in 2011 from Cambridge. Cambridge has a compulsory retirement age, um, 67. And um, the last three years, I've been going half-time to Chapel Hill and doing various bits and pieces of lecturing in uh, the United Kingdom. So I've kept busy, and all the time I've kept on writing. I think that's about all there is to say about myself. <laughs> well, that's that's wonderful um, uh, and very helpful. Um, so let's pick up on just one of the um, uh, features of, of what you uh, just laid out. Um, so you 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 wrote this book, Think, uh, for a student or even popular audience. Mm -hmm. And um, you've since written other works, which you hadn't mentioned, yeah. uh, of a similar kind. So you have a book about lust. Yes. Um, you have a, uh, a book about um, Plato's Republic, yes. which is uh, meant to be sort of um, for non-professionals and interested uh, um, uh, adults. Uh, now, this book, Mirror, Mirror, um, although all of your work is philosophically sophisticated um this book mirror mirror is uh is also i take it intended for a broader audience that is it's a serious philosophical reflection intended to engage um yeah. a non-professional readership um so i wanted to just begin by asking a little bit about um your motivations for um for writing uh books of this kind um a lot of philosophers um tend to you know yeah. to write strictly for a yes. you know a professional audience uh you on the other hand i think do a, a really splendid job of dividing your philosophical writing between uh you know academic work for serious uh fellow philosophers and then this very deep philosophical work intended for broader audiences can you tell us a little bit about uh your motivations for pursuing uh, uh that second track yes well thanks bob um Yes, it's. Um, I, I think I, I'm, I've always been, even in my most serious philosophical work, the kind of stuff that um, uh, nobody reads outside the profession. Um, something of a clairantist. Um, that's the opposite of an obscurantist. Mm -hmm. um, I like my philosophy to be clear. I don't like um, writing that makes me work too hard. Uh, perhaps I'm lazy, um, and um, and I get irritated with authors when I can't make out exactly why they're um, getting the into the complexities that philosophy sometimes does indeed raise. Um, philosophy can be a very complex subject, and then you just have to put up with it and follow the complexities. But if I find that an author's making things more complicated than they ought to be, it irritates me. Um, so I've always had that kind of passion for clarity, if you like, uh, and that, I hope, bridges my formal academic work and my, uh, my writing for a general audience. Um, I think what happened in my career was when I wrote Spreading the Word in 1984, um, the philosophy of language was, was very difficult, and I had a lot of students who were finding the uh, great authors in the field uh, fairly incomprehensible and I thought well I can help with this, I can make it more comprehensible now, Spreading the Word is very much a book for advanced undergraduates and graduate students um, but it did make a lot of things more comprehensible for them than 
Otherwise, I think they were finding them. They they were thrown in the deep end with authors like Peter Strawson, Michael Dummett, Bertrand Russell, Frege, uh, great names in the profession and great thinkers, um, but not always gifted with the uh, the ability to make the landscape, you know, utterly transparent for the student. Uh, so that was that put me on the track of thinking. Well, really, this is something I seem to enjoy doing and that I can do. So over the next uh, ten years or so, as you mentioned, I um, I sort of divided my time. My professional time was, you know, submitting papers to conferences and journals and so forth. Uh, and um, uh, and also I had the ambition of writing a, a book about my philosophical work, which eventually came out in 1998. Um, but at the same time, I was enjoying writing books like Think. Uh, you mentioned the book on Lust, which was great fun to write. Um, <laughs> and, uh, um, and I kept up those twin tracks. I'd like to say I don't like being thought of as a popularizer. The, uh, that implies sort of dumbing down. Um, and my ambition is always to, uh, is always to bring people to philosophy to, to show them why it's enjoyable and it can be intriguing and, uh, perhaps to do something to defend my obsession with it. Um, so I like to talk of myself as not as popularizing philosophy, but as uh, bringing people to philosophy. Um, and I hope I've done some of that. Well, yeah, I, I, that's a good way to, 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 to put, um, or to characterize the work, which, um, uh, I think you succeed very well. Um, so let's get to, uh, to talking then about the contents of Mirror Mirror. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Which is uh, again, I, I, I've been recommending it to, uh, to to all of my colleagues here, by the way. Um, which um, so I, I I find really intriguing the motivating um, puzzle we might call it of the book, and in fact um, maybe this puzzle is 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 foreshadowed with the cover image, which is uh, a, a picture of a mirror, the, the top part of which is intact and the bottom part of which is fractured. Um, so the puzzle, I take it, is that um, it goes something like this, that selves and our attitudes about selves, uh, our own selves and other selves, are sort of the core of moral philosophy. Selves are the things either that we are evaluating or the things that are the agents that perform actions, and the actions are what we're evaluating. Um, so selves somehow play a central role in all of our moral thinking. Right. Yet... A lot of the moral thinking that comes out on the other end is um, suspicious of the self or thinks that the, the, the moral standing of selves is something to be looked at with a, uh, with a kind of skepticism and that perhaps the key to morality is, in a way, um, overcoming or transcending or dissolving Good. the self. Good. Um, mm-hmm. So can you describe uh, this puzzle and, and, and how you, 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 you treat it? Well, um, that's, uh, that's very nicely put, Bob. I think that's a, that's a good way of you know, entering, the, entering the topic. Um, you're absolutely right. A, a lot of moral philosophy, I can, you can think here, for example, of um, uh, Plato, I mean, always starts with Plato, but you can certainly think, say, of the Stoics, where cultivation of the self becomes the goal. The goal is to be virtuous, and the Greeks tended to identify with the exercise of virtue with happiness, and so a kind of self-cultivation uh, became the uh, the royal road to philosophy. That was what uh, philosophy was about, as it were. And um, 
if you read um, Epictetus or Marcus Aurelius, especially the great Stoics or Seneca, all his letters are really about um, how to cultivate the self. Um, now, of course, cultivating virtue and cultivating the self are two, might strike us as two rather different things. Um, I don't think, I think for the, for the Greeks and Romans, they, they were not different things. Uh, you cultivated yourself by cultivating virtue and then you became what you needed to become. Uh, and so the goal was to slough off all the false ideas, false emotions, false attachments that stood in the way of this, this way to virtue. And of course that uh, resonates a great deal with the great religious traditions, the Christian tradition is one, but the uh, the tradition of Taoism, say in China, Taoism, or Buddhism, ways of renunciation and so forth. But these are all basically cultivations of the soul. But then, as you rightly say, often the aim of the cultivation is to, as it were, transcend the self, to get to get beyond the what Iris Murdoch called the avaricious tentacles of the self. Um, to sort of somehow stand aloof from your um, natural inclinations, your base desires, your lusts, your um, uh, cravings, and to somehow transcend those and, and achieve a kind of uh, possibly an indifference to the world or, an in, or at least a dignity. Um, and uh, so you do have that sort of um, tension. There's a uh, a self-cultivation there's also self-forgetfulness and you can see that in for example Christianity uh, some Christian writings are very much aimed at um, uh, cultivation of the self the purity of the self self-examination um, self-interrogation uh, spiritual exercises designed to get the self into better health and so on um, but at the same time, you're encouraged to lose yourself in love of God, to lose yourself in perhaps love of your fellow man, uh, to think less about yourself, to become humble and modest and uh, generally more saintly, uh, which implies uh, uh, an absence of concern for the self. And I don't think Christianity or any other um, great religion uh, ever succeeds in resolving that ambiguity completely. There's always some ambivalence about the self in the air. Right. Um, can but can, so the the puzzle then seems to be that, um, uh, and, and maybe this is just easy, most easily put in these sort of Aristotelian terms that mm. even though the self is at the core, um, there's a a series of vices that are associated with. Um, uh, having the wrong kind of attachment or too extreme an attachment to oneself. Yes. Um, so maybe, uh, can, can you tell us one of the things that sort of, uh, returns through the book and you get devote a whole chapter and then, uh, it keeps coming back is the myth of, of, um, narcissists. Could you tell us about your reading of that myth? Yeah. Uh, well, of course, the, um, I expect your, uh, hearers and readers will, will know the bare bones of the myth, narcissus is the beautiful shepherd boy. He's grown to the age of 16 or so. Um, he's much loved, erotically loved by people, but he's indifferent to their um, attractions or to their uh, advances. Um, he's a solitary, and one day he's lying in a glade in the forest, 
He's a shepherd boy, so he's presumably out in the countryside tending sheep. And he um, uh, sees his face in a pond. Um, he's struck with the beauty of what he's looking at and falls in love. Um, but, of course, it's himself that he falls in love with. A nice feature of the situation is that in this state, the only voice he ever hears, the voice in his head, as it were, is the voice of the nymph Echo. Echo was a wood nymph um, whose incessant chattering so annoyed the goddess Juno that Juno uh, condemned her to only ever repeating uh, what anybody had said to her. Uh, so she is indeed an echo. Um, and I think what, what this feature of the myth suggests is that the um, the excess of self-love, which is Narcissus's, um, goes along with, uh, as it were, imagining the voice of others in your own head, uh, praising you, no doubt, and admiring you and loving you as they should. Uh, but really, that's only your own voice. It's your own projection. It's what you think the others, other people should be saying rather than what they're actually likely to be saying. Um, so it's an imaginative kind of fantasy. Um, anyhow, Narcissus remains in this solitary state, but it gradually kills him. He withers away. Uh, interestingly enough, when he withers away, there is no body to be found. There's only the humble jonquil or daffodil, the Narcissus, um, which always holds its head bowed towards the ground. So there's a kind of um, death of the soul, but not a death of the body. Um, and I think that suggests that there's no, no residue. There's nothing left for society. There's nothing left for the rest of us from Narcissus's career. Um, by being so solitary and bound up solely with his own beauty, he's, uh, he's lost society and we've lost him, in effect. Um, so I think it's a very telling myth. It, uh, it, it warns us of the dangers of excessive self-absorption, um, not just, I think, of self-love, but of um, uh, always having ourselves at the forefront of our um, own imaginings and our own voices in our own head. Um, so I, I liked it for that reason, because I think uh, a lot of people are worried about narcissism in the in the modern world, about the cult of the selfie and all that. And so I thought it was um, I thought it was a nice myth just to put it up front in the book. It's one of several myths that take a uh, have a role in the book, but it's the the starter myth, as it were. And I thought that the just the cult of the selfie I thought was um, your observation <laughs> uh, in the book about that I thought was uh, was quite on target that you know the the thing to note about being in front of the Eiffel Tower is that you were there. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, I know. <laughs> so let's transition then, since we're already on the um, uh, the sort of. Um, uh, the, the the cultural critique uh, aspect uh, of the book. Um, uh, so you say that um, in the, in the introduction of the book, you say that one of the the things that um, gets you uh, working on some of these themes and m might even motivate you to write the book is what you later call your inchoate despair <laughs> <laughs> yes. at uh, the the L'Oreal Cosmetics Company. Yes. Uh, yes, and I'm sure our listeners will, uh, if they don't recognize uh, that it's a campaign by L'Oreal, they'll recognize the slogan because you're worth it. Yeah. Um, 
And uh, I have to say that uh, in reading the book, you convinced me that this is an insidious, uh, uh, awful uh, uh, slogan. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? It's very fascinating. Thank you. Yes, well, um, it is true that um, I had uh, you know, been exposed to this slogan, as everybody in the whole world must be. Um, and I found it curiously upsetting. Um, that is, I, I found it um, generating, as I say, in Kuwait despair. <laughs> um, um, and I didn't know why. Uh, I found that, I found that puzzling about myself in a way. So, um, so then I started reflecting on the appeal to vanity. It's not as if, uh, you know, I'm not so innocent in my philosophical ivory tower that I wasn't familiar with human vanity. Um, but, um, it seemed a particularly blatant or in some way a, a corrupt kind of appeal to vanity. Uh, at least that's, that's how I seem to be taking it. And I didn't quite know why. Um, in a sense, my own reaction dumbfounded me. I couldn't put a, put a tongue to it. So I started to think about this, and um, the book, in a sense, emerged from those thoughts. There was another aspect of the advertising of things like cosmetics and shampoos and fashion and so on, which also puzzled me, and these two puzzles came together in a way. Um, and that was the fact that, of course, often enough in advertisements, the persona in the advert uh, simpers at us or smiles at us or, or looks insanely happy because they've just purchased whatever they've just purchased. Um, but often um, they look aloof and arrogant and they sort of pout and sneer and uh, just give a project an image of superiority. And it puzzled me that that's a, uh, that's a device that can be used to sell things because in real life, um, it's extremely unpleasant to be exposed to arrogance. Arrogant people don't make friends. They, um, they make enemies. And, uh, so why was this unattractive human trait nevertheless a successful projection in the advertising or fashion industries? Um, that puzzled me as well. So these two puzzles eventually came together. And I started reflecting on what the models are projecting why people are insidiously attracted to um, the status, as it were, that the models um, are inviting them to envy and to be motivated towards. And, of course, it, it has to do inevitably with um, the sense of superiority, the sense of self-sufficiency that the, um, the personas are projecting, the sense of not needing... Uh, everyday humilities and compromises and reciprocities of other people, but being entirely enclosed in their own cocoon of conceit or self-love or um, uh, self-praise. Um, and that's somehow people think of as an enviable state, which of course takes us back to Narcissus, because that's exactly what he's like. Um and I think it is this uh, wish to be sort of free of the civilities that characterize social life, um, which provides a kind of fantasy, if only for a moment, but it is a fantasy. If only we could be like the persona in the advert, we think we could uh, 
uh, we could as it were be above all the mess and compromise and um, little indignities of our social lives um, so that was the appeal I thought um, and um, and then of course the there's a lie in the advert <laughs> um, because really the idea is the idea of the consumer or would-be consumer of the target is meant to have is I'm not really worth it but if I buy the shampoo, I might become worth it. <laughs> and so, in a way, the, the slogan should be, you know, because you're rubbish. <laughs> um, but of course, that's not, uh, that's not a good slogan to throw at people. But the idea is that the consumer should contrast their own humble position with the superior position that the, the advertisement shows them. And this, this will then waft them up onto a pedestal and, uh, generates lots of uh, esteem and admiration of the whole of the rest of the world, which of course it never does, but that's the fantasy. Right. And I, one of the things that you say in the book is that, um, you know, the, the, the pouting, um, model, uh, the, the disdainful model is sort of in, the effect is the insistence that we feel worse about ourselves yes. in their presence. Yes. That that's somehow the the key. Maybe that's in a twisted way the key to the success of the strategy. Well, it, right? is, it is. It's the key to the success. And of course, it's very depressing that people both live lives where that's an attractive goal, a fantasy that can seduce them. Um, and it's depressing as companies know how to exploit that fact about people. So that, that I felt diagnosed my discomfort at the advertisement, which I'm glad to say a lot of other people have said they shared, although they never put their, their minds to analyzing it. Well, um, so perfect. Um, I think that it's a very deep observation that the, and maybe the, the L'Oreal ad is just a, um, particularly overt, um, it, you know, sort of example of what might be the sort of garden variety marketing strategy for all kinds of products. Absolutely. Yeah. Feel worse about yourself while at the same time, yeah. Um, being told something very flattering about yes, exactly. uh, yeah. being told that you could achieve the status that is shown in the investment. I ought to say, just because um, I believe they're quite litigious, that I had nothing but admiration for L'Oreal. I don't know anything about their shampoo, but uh, the advert was a very, very successful advert. Uh, <laughs> genius, in fact. And they're a very, very successful company. Well, excellent. Um, so moving on then to some of these lessons. Um, so I take it that, um, the, the, the treatment of the narcissist myth, the discussion of the, um, uh, our own, um, in some ways, uh, strained attachment, uh, to ourselves, um, uh, sort of culminate in these uh, later chapters about topics ranging from hubris and pride and self-esteem to uh, integrity and sincerity. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the positive sort of pictures that start to emerge? Yes, um, certainly, because it's not a – I don't like thinking of myself as a moralistic sort of person. This was always an exercise in analysis rather than in condemning the state of the world or lamenting the uh, – uh, the state of human beings, but the the uh, I felt that the analysis is quite interesting. There are distinctions to be drawn, uh, and some other writers have drawn them, of course. 
Um, one that intrigued me was the difference, which is noticed by Adam Smith, um, between vanity, um, which he sees as a, a kind of craving for the admiration of other people, for the feeling that you're getting praise from other people, and that's vanity, versus pride, which is more to do with feeling that you deserve the praise of other people, but the proud person didn't care whether he gets it. It could be enough for your proud per- for a proud person that um, uh, he's confident that he's done something that would deserve it, but it may be that other people just don't know what he's done, and that's fine by him. So pride can go with indifference to the applause and admiration that vanity is excessively concerned with. Um, and then there are notions like self-esteem and self-respect. Self-esteem, of course, can um, can mount up to pathological heights, to something like conceit, uh, uh, when you, you get then the um, the utterly self-confident person, the person who's uh, so sure of his or her own judgment that they don't need to um, converse with others to, to thrash things out in concert with other people. And then that's the sort of a characteristic vice of politicians and leaders or would-be leaders. Um, um, but con- uh, conceit, again, is unlike vanity because the, um, the victim is becoming self-sufficient. Um, again, his own voice or echo is the only voice he hears or she hears. Um, so that's interesting too. And then at the bottom of self-esteem is um, the notion of an estimate of the self. And then obviously that casts a query over whether the self-esteem industry and the um, the value we put on self-esteem is uh, quite well directed, as well directed as it should be. Because generally speaking, if we estimate things too highly, we go wrong. And if we estimate them too lowly, we go wrong. The art of estimating things is to get them about right. So if I overestimate, say, my abilities as a rock climber, I'm going to be heading for a fall. Um, if I underestimate them, on the other hand, I may not do things which I would really have enjoyed doing and would have been worthwhile doing. So the art of est- uh, self-esteem seems to be to have a, a fairly lucid almost clinical appreciation of what you're good at and what you're not. Um, and that strike, struck me as uh, um, uh, as interesting because, as I say, it's, uh, it fires a little bit of a torpedo at the um, almost universal belief that it's great to crank up self-esteem, to produce children who've never been criticized, to produce people who... Um, are bathed in a kind of warm bath of their own self, um, uh, self-esteem. Um, well, I was very pleased to find when I looked at the psychological literature that in fact there's very little evidence that cranking up self-esteem does much good to anybody. Um, and I felt I had a, a, a diagnosis of why, <laughs> uh, in this, uh, uh, connection with the, the idea of a just estimate, which is uh, what we should be aiming for. And then finally there's self-respect, which of course is um, uh, itself a very valuable trait. If you don't respect yourself, um, then I think you, um, well, if you make yourself a worm, as Kant says, if you make yourself a worm, you 
can expect to be trodden on. Um, so, uh, so in spite of the Christian affirmation of humility, um, in fact, a decent self-respect is is important. I was very pleased to find Milton, John Milton, who's of course a, a profound, profoundly pious Christian, uh, nevertheless talking about a just, uh, pious and just honouring of ourselves being the fountain of good deeds and good action in the world. Um, so that too became important that um, self-respect is not bad and self-esteem, which goes not much further than self-respect, is, is excellent. Um, but of course, the other traits like vanity are not so good. Pride, I'm quite kind about. I mean, I think that the, the uh, in fact, I'm not sure whether a lot of the Christian um, condemnation of pride you know, in the Christian tradition, pride is the leading sin. It's the chief of the seven deadly sins, the radix omnium malorum, the root of all evil. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not sure why they think that. Um, proper pride, and it's interesting that we have the phrase proper pride. Um, there's no proper vanity. There's no proper narcissism. <laughs> um, but proper pride, I think, is just the ability to take a decent pleasure in having done something well or there been something good about oneself, uh, which is an appropriate um, appropriate object of pleasure, um, just as I take pleasure in um, uh, you know seeing my son do something well, so I could take a reasonable pleasure in myself having done something well, and I see that as quite innocent and um, not at all related to things like arrogance and disobedience, which is the, the Christian sort of horror, which um, they seem to associate with pride. Um, pride can become overweening and overbearing, and then it becomes arrogance. And of course, as we've already said, that's very unattractive. Right. Um, but it doesn't have to. Right. So one um, term that you introduce um, throughout these discussions uh, or at the close of these discussions um, is uh, from zoology um, uh, kleptoparasitism yes Um, so what's the kleptoparasite (laughs) (laughs) well it's a term I learned um, when I was uh, in the uh, sailing in the Hebrides uh, which is a lovely thing to do believe me um, and there's uh, the seabirds, the, the gannets, um, are marvellous big, big-winged seabirds. They've, they go up to a significant height, perhaps 100, 150 feet, from which with their wonderful eyesight they can see fish. And then they plummet down. They actually accelerate downwards. They, they um, dive down um, and catch the fish. Um but then, alas, um, their predator awaits. The predator is called the bonksy, or the uh, skewer, the great skewer. And the bonksy can attack the gannet with its fish and harass it to such an extent that the gannet drops the fish, which the bonksy then catches and makes off with. And this is known <laughs> apparently in zoological circles. Uh, frigate birds do the same thing to the uh, uh, boobies of the Galapagos Islands and places like that. So it's a well-known sort of form of life in the natural world. And uh, zoologists have a name for it, which is kleptoparasitism. 
<laughs> it's a parasite that's parasitized on the other birds by stealing their stuff that they've successfully hunted. Um, and uh, this struck me as a very amusing kind of analogy to uh, what I see as the, the depredations of many financial institutions and many um, CEOs, uh, executives, chief executives, all the people who seem very happy taking far more out of their companies or far more out of their clients' bank accounts uh, than they really ought to feel <laughs> comfortable with. And I, I detail how that's been an accelerating trend in the modern world. Um, I, I, uh, I'm not an economist, but I did enough research to find out the the, the shape the graphs have taken, which are pretty depressing. Sure. And uh, so I talk about that a certain amount and why why the boardroom race, uh, the race to ever-increasing remuneration, um, is an exercise of vanity and an exercise of envy. And then uh, uh, I reflect a little bit on why, given that I don't believe human nature changes, what I think changes is the climate, the culture, um, the kind of things we find acceptable uh, by way of behavior, and the kind of things that people admire. And so I reflect a little bit on why the greed is good culture um, really took root in the 1980s and has gone on ever since. Right. So can you tell us a little bit? I mean, so can you tell us a little bit about your I mean, you you, you do talk a lot about well, not a lot, but you do talk about Gordon Gecko and that um, <laughs> that particular character and the greed yeah. is good speech. Yes. Um, can you fill in some of the details there about the, about how that is driven by a kind of vanity and envy? Yes. Well, um, the idea that greed is driven by um, partly by vanity and partly and vanity, of course, vanity can, as I also say, be driven by fear. Uh, the fear right. that you're falling behind, the fear that you're not appreciated. Um, so sometimes it's a it's a subject not so much of moralizing but of pity. Uh, you should sympathize with vain people. Their insecurity is driving them to the to vanity. Now I think in the 1980s, with the decline of the sometimes called a post-war consensus, the uh, rival of the uh, right-wing Austrian economic school, neoclassical economics, um, you do get a sort of uh, a sense that um, worth can only be measured by monetary rewards. Uh, there is no social contract left. There's nothing left for virtue to do except um, deliver you more and more crafty ways of uh, of getting more and more money, of becoming a better and better captain parasite. Right. Um, and this did seem to be a profound cultural change. It's one I lived through. Um, it affected everyone. It affects, it affects academic lives. Um, when I started at Oxford, for example, we were on a, a um, an age-wage scale. If you had a certain age, 29 or 45, uh, you earned a certain amount of money, and that was it. It didn't matter whether you published books or not. Oh, we're very successful, household name, Nobel Prize winner. It didn't matter at all. You got the same wage, um, depending on your number of years you'd accumulated. Um, now, that, of course, is unthinkable now. Um, everybody's 
struggling to uh, convince the dean that they're worth more than the guy next door in the next office. And that's a huge change, cultural change, change in what's uh, regarded as acceptable. Uh, and uh, I, uh, I regret it. I, uh, I benefited from it because I got quite high profile. <laughs> but, um, uh, but I still think it's a decline in our idea of a social contract, our idea of what makes for a good society, uh, and so on. So I'm, uh, I'm afraid I'm not, a, I'm not quite at home in the modern world. <laughs> well, maybe that's not such a a terrible thing. Um, so now on to the again to this sort of uh, one of the one of the positive um, uh, uh, points in the book is um, your analysis of sincerity. Oh yes, um, mm-hmm. and the connection between sincerity and um, a more difficult to track uh, concept, um, or maybe maybe two more difficult to track uh, concepts: authenticity and integrity. Oh, yeah. uh, can you tell us about those? Uh, how that part of the, the the view runs? Yes, this this got me into quite um, deep waters. Uh, I was surprised how difficult I found it to think uh, in ways that satisfied me about those concepts. Um, on the face of it, sincerity, I think, is the easiest. It's just the um, the idea is that the face you present to the world is not false. It's it's yourself. At its simplest, you are honest. You don't tell lies. You don't defraud people. You don't um, come on as something that you're not. Um, so, that, so that, on the face of it, sounds quite simple. Um, and necessary, and of course necessary. Yes, right. I mean right. uh, we can't uh, we can't form a society without uh, a decent amount of trust at an elementary level in other people, and um, sincerity is, as it were, the uh, the guarantor of that uh, that degree of trust is is met by trustworthiness. Um, so that's not too bad. But then you get to authenticity. And that, I think, is much harder because there the idea is that you might unwittingly, perhaps, be false to yourself. So the, the idea is of a true self, a real self, a self that somehow um, might only be discovered at the end of a long process that might require, you know, really quite uncomfortable spiritual exercises to uncover uh, the sort of self that you're confronted with in the dark hours when you worry whether, you know, if you did something for your friend, was it really altruism or were you hoping for a reward in return? That sort of worry. And, um, of course, again, a lot of um, spiritual writings, you know, require us to dig deep into our own motivations, our own souls to find the real um, the real gold that may be there. Um, I find this quite puzzling, and I think it may depend on a very suspicious metaphysics of the self, a suspect metaphysics. Um, Shakespeare, of course, is always the, the quote, the, to thine own self be true, and it follows as the night, the day, thou canst not to any man be false. Um, but it's often forgotten that Shakespeare puts that in the mouth of the very bumbling, ordinary, mediocre, busybody polonius. Right. <laughs> um, Shakespeare himself has a much more, um, as it were, imaginative and intelligent conception of cells as often essentially conflicted, 
Um, so there's no single self at the bottom of this voyage. There's just uh, different voices pu- pulling each of us in different directions. Um, and the tragic heroes, especially the later plays, you know, are just the the focus of conflict and indecision and um, the inability to follow one course of action to the exclusion of others um, and so on. So they're, they're the, the locus of conflict. Um, and I talk a little bit about whether that's particular to modernity, whether it's a modern condition, which, for example, the Greeks were above, or whether it's, um, it's actually much more... Uh, much more the human lot than people think. And again, with that conflict and complexity, you get a corresponding problem with a very simplistic notion of integrity. Um, I mean, I take it anybody moderately grown up thinks that the um, heroes of Western films, at least classic Western films, were always just a little bit cardboard you know, the, right. the Humphrey Bogart who always knows exactly what to do and can't be deflected from the honest cause or the John Wayne figure. Um, um, and their cardboard nature comes out because they're precisely not conflicted. They're not in doubt. They're not um, uh, tugged in different ways. They don't, they're not just going to walk off the set and leave the heroine to be, you know, to perish. Um and uh, um, I, I'm interested in the, the kind of complexity which probably arises from having many different social roles that we put on at different times um, that sort of, it doesn't tarnish the idea of integrity, but it makes it more complicated. And so, so that chapter was about the, um, you know, the, the, the obstacles in front of the simple ideal of transparency which could be achieved by some kind of uh, exercise or some kind of um, uh, you know, regime of self-interrogation. I take it that many of our listeners um, might associate um, the, the concept of authenticity with something existentialist. Yeah. Um, and you've got some things to say about uh, what you see as significant problems uh, with the, the sort of Sartrean view of the authentic self. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Well, it's very curious that um, um, uh, existentialism has become sort of, um, highly associated with authenticity, uh, both Heidegger and Sartre, um, because on the face of it, it's it's an enemy of the idea. That, I mean, the existentialist ideal seems to be the um, the free hero, whose freedom consists in the fact that he uh, he has no essence. Um, existence precedes essence. That the hero makes himself up as he goes along. He uh, he writes the script. He is the author of the narrative of his own life. So the arc of his life is a matter of choice. It's not a matter of there being a self already there, which is um, uh, is going to determine uh, the upshot. It's a matter of him seizing the upshot. This is a very romantic notion. It's got roots too in Kant. Um, Kant thought that you are you have metaphysical freedom, you're always free to 
um, well, particularly to follow the right course of action, to do the right thing. Um, and it's, it's not really, it seemed to me, a comfortable bedfellow of the idea of authenticity, because if, as Sartre is right, we're always basically free, we're free to choose, um, uh, uh, then, then we're, we're free to make up what is our real self as time unfolds and as choices unfold. And you could never look back with hindsight and say, that wasn't really me. Um, it was as really you, whatever you did, as anything else that you'd have done. So if you, um, you know, took one course faced with one of these tragic dilemmas uh, that the existentialists like to talk about, um, that was really you taking it, taking that course. And if you'd done the other thing, that would really have been you taking the other course. Um, <laughs> right. So, so the injunction to be authentic starts to look very, very empty. Um, it just means you make choices as you go along, and every time you make a choice, it's it's you. Um, it's not, as it were, untrue to you. Um, so it doesn't leave much room for the, the idea of a betrayal of yourself or of not living up to yourself. Uh, right. And those notions too then need to be, uh, you know, re recrafted, um, rethought about. Right. So um, we're, you've been very generous uh, with your time, Simon. So let me um, ask just a final question about the book. Yeah. Um, because, you know, as even this, our, our chat is um, made clear, uh, there is running through the book sometimes as a backdrop, but sometimes as, as, uh, as something taking center stage, uh, a real political and social set of concerns. Mm. Um uh, not only with greed is good culture and the the, the cult of the selfie uh, and these sorts of things, but also uh, I take it maybe perhaps to play um, on the the mirror metaphor uh, with a kind of unreflective way of life mm-hmm. um, and a resistance to reflection. And in fact, at the very end of the book, um, you know, you run through some conclusions, many of which are, you know, it's, it's, it's complicated. You yeah, know, there are right. there are proper ways to be uh, connected to the self. There's dangers associated with self-reflection and uh, uh, the dangers of self-absorption. Um, but then there's a sort of hopeful um, uh, gesture to the reader that yeah. you seem to think that the, the fact that people have read to the end of the book is something to be hopeful about. Um uh, that that being interested in pursuing these reflections is a step in the right direction. Can you can you tell well, us a little bit about how that how the book ends? Yes, well, uh, well, you summarised it very well, Bob, and I'm not sure I can do do any better. But I, <laughs> um, yes, I do. I do uh, I'm a, <laughs> I mean, I'm a cheerful sort of chap. I'm not a Jeremiah. I don't think that we're getting worse and that there was once a golden age when we were free of kleptoparasitism and the rest. <laughs> um, so, um, and I do think that when there's, if there's been change and if there are things about the modern world to worry about, which I think there are, um, then they are in our own control. That is, we're not condemned to be nasty. We can recognize when things have got out of hand and then we can set about improving them. Uh, so I do think that self-reflection, that the reflect, well, the kind of reflection that the classical philosophical tradition always put at the forefront of their 
goals, you know, the, um, uh, the, the Delphic injunction to know thyself is a very good one. Uh, and so I wanted to, to give a, a plum to the readers who, who, who does it were well, taken hold of that injunction. And by getting to think about these things, they are getting to know themselves and other people. Well, excellent. Um, so, uh, again, I want to thank you for your time um, in talking to us about Mirror Mirror, which uh, I recommend highly. Um, can I ask one last question, which is, um, what's next for you? Huh. Well, um, I think it's uh, it's in, it's incumbent on, on me to go back to my more professional. Um, I, I mentioned earlier on that I'm retired, but I do still try and write, and I try and publish in the journals and go to conferences and things. And I think I have to devote quite a lot of time to pragmatism, which is uh, an ism, which is quite big in uh, contemporary analytic philosophy. Um, it's come out of the closet in a way due to the writings of Wittgenstein, um, Wilfred Sellers, and of course there's the classic American pragmatist tradition in the background, sure. William James, Peirce, Dewey. Um, and I've made little forays and exercises in discussing that, and uh, I think it's time I tried to bring them together. So I would like to write a book about that. But I'm also being nagged by Oxford University Press to produce a third edition of my dictionary. <laughs> so, uh, so I've got to, uh, I've got to think about that too. So I think for a while I'm not going to be publishing anything for the general reader. Although I certainly don't promise never to do so again. <laughs> well, Simon, that's been uh, it's been wonderful talking to you, um, and uh, I'll keep a, a, a special eye out for anything that might emerge, um, uh, particularly about pragmatism, which is an interest of mine. Um, and um, maybe when when that work starts uh, coming forth, uh, we'll have you back on new books in philosophy. Well, thank you very much, Bob. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Take care now. <laughs>